Hello, everyone, and welcome to this uh, podcast. As you know, uh, this podcast follows on from a webinar that we held on 24 September called Mass Claims, the European Perspective, Recent Developments and Future Implications for Businesses. And this webinar was part of a global webinar series that we're running around class and mass claims challenges. And a full recording of the uh, 45-minute webinar is still available to you as well. Um, and this brief podcast today uh, serves to, to very briefly summarize what we talked about and to continue the discussion around class actions and answer some of the questions that come, came up during the webinar and that we weren't able to, uh, to answer during that session. So let me reintroduce uh, the speakers from the webinar um, again. So I'm joined again by Nathalie Collin, who is in our uh, Brussels office, Sabine Prossinger from the Vienna office, Dimitri Leca from Paris, Patrick Schroeder from Hamburg, and my name is Jeroen van Heeswijk, and I'm based in Amsterdam. So to, to very briefly recap um, before we continue our discussion, uh, we spent some time during the webinar on the, um, the new proposed European Directive on Collective Actions. And as we mentioned, it, it's still a proposal, but we do expect it to, uh, to be adopted later this year or early next year, which means that it would come into force somewhere by the end of 2022, early 2023. And the directive obliges all uh, 27 EU member states to introduce at least one form of collective redress, which is really aimed at providing redress for consumers. So it provides for consumers and consumer organizations to start collective actions. And it stipulates that those collective actions must actually be able to lead to damages or refunds for consumers. But apart from setting that minimum standard, the directive at the same time leaves a lot of choices for the member states, and in particular also allows member states to, to maintain different class action regimes in parallel to the one prescribed by the directive. So on the basis of that new development, uh, we're continuing the discussion uh, today, and I'll uh, ask Natalie to moderate the discussion. Thank you, Jérôme. It is very interesting to know, based on the EU uh, draft EU directive, what is the future of class action in Europe? First of all, a first question is to, to know whether we can expect a US-style class action in Europe in the near future. For instance, can we expect punitive damages? Can we expect now to have discovery in Europe? And more generally, is a uh, system of success fees uh, will become a new normal way to handle class action in Europe. Dimitri, what is your opinion on this? Well, Nathalie, uh, of course, US class action is a legit, legitimate concern when, when talking about collective address. My personal view on that is that it is unlikely that we are going to see very rapidly after the implementation of the directive uh, a sort of equivalent to the US system as we know it, or as we assume it is. There are a number of reasons for that. First of all, I don't think that the directive is really encouraging certain features, which are really uh, a characteristic of US class action. The directive does not call for extensive uh, discovery, for example, and does not either call for plenty of law firms taking the driving seats. On the contrary, the directive is promoting uh, qualified entities to be on the forefront of the actions to be initiated. And I also think that a number of legal systems across Europe 
are not very fan of others' features. For example, I think that a number of European jurisdictions will still be resistant to have opt-out class actions going forward. And so if you put that together, you can see that the, the main drivers for the success and maybe for certain abuse of US class actions are probably not going to be there immediately after the implementation of the directive. Yeah, I agree. And Dimitri, I think because one thing to remember is that this directive came about because the European Commission is worried that consumers have less protection in Europe than in the US. But apparently the member states are not so convinced because it, it would be completely possible for member states today to introduce class actions, right? Nothing prevents them from introducing far-reaching class action regimes, but apparently they don't really see a need to do it and the commission needs to push them. But as we said, it, it really only forces them to a very minimal form of, of class action. And so it would not really be that logical that member states now all of a sudden would introduce very far-reaching regimes because if they had wanted to do so, why didn't they do it up to today? I also agree that the directive will not be a, a catalyst for, for change in that direction, especially since it does not aim at changing the substantive law in any way. So, for example, punitive damages, they would require a reform in the substantive law uh, field. However, uh, some aspects of procedure, of course, uh, might be modified during the adaptation process of the directive. As you said, Iron, it will not change the discretion that the member states have. So if during the consultation process, maybe on how to uh, implement the directive, certain member states came to the conclusion that they wanted to change the procedural framework more into the direction of more invasive uh, mechanisms that would be possible but we do not have any indications for that. I agree as well. And maybe one element is also that the directive maintains the loser pays principle. And I think that's also uh, one uh, essential <laughs> key element uh, that uh, there is no big risk of US type of class actions in Europe. Thank you all. And I can add that from a Belgian perspective, we anticipate the EU directive and it was clear in the draft and the preparation of the law that we want to avoid US class action. So if we don't have a US style class action, what could we expect? What are the risks and what are the options? First question maybe in that regard is to know, Patrick and Sabine, do you think we all have an interest to try to influence our uh, states uh, in the implementation of the EU directive. Yeah, Natalie, I think uh, we should. Coincidentally, I had a meeting yesterday with some consumer organizations and uh, they indicated that they are already in the process of lobbying towards implementation mechanisms. So I think uh, companies and we as the defendant bar should also organize and form a view of what we want to do. And as we've said during the webinar, I think one of the aspects, for example, is to think about whether opt-in or opt-out mechanisms are appropriate. And there's also other considerations, for example, should existing collective redress mechanisms be reformed? Should there be a new mechanism in parallel to existing mechanisms? 
Things like that need to be analyzed in every different jurisdiction because in the future we will still see mass claims all over the place because the, what Jeroen, you have said during the webinar, there's not one place of jurisdiction and there is also no precedent, no lease pendants. So it's possible, for example, for one defendant who does business in many member states to be confronted with 26 or 27 Uh, mass claims in the different jurisdictions. And so it will be also important uh, to think about how to deal with the different mechanisms and uh, on how to deal with forum shopping. Patrick, a question about that. Do you think that we will get much more references to the ECJ? Because if you, as you expect, we would have many parallel cases and, and not necessarily by definition, but many of these are about consumer law. Consumer law largely originates from the European Union these days. So would we see that there would be lots of references to the ECJ and would there be a strategic question around managing that process? Well, um, I think that when it comes to consumer contracts, indeed, we already see quite a bit of activity that claimants believe the ECJ jurisprudence is more favorable than national court jurisprudence. So they try to reach the ECJ as early as possible in a mass claim or in a consumer, uh, in parallel consumer claims proceedings. So I would expect that this trend continues, especially if we have more mass claims due to the directive and all that, let's say, publicity that the topic gets at this stage. I think we will also see that uh, that the associations become more litigious and that will mean more cases in the ECJ, at least uh, that's what I'm convinced of. Yes, it's good to know, but based on what you all explain, I see that there is a possibility of forum shopping for the claimant in class action. Do you think this is a reality? And if it is a reality, which kind of element can influence a choice of a group of claimants in class actions. Jeroen? As much as this is about protecting consu uh, consumers, it's inevitably also about making money for people that are in this business, right? So it's, for me, it's always a question of, of risk and reward in a sense. So maybe it's cynical, but I think where people are going to litigate is going to be driven by where they expect to make the most money. It's, it's probably as simple as that, because as I said, this is a business also. And one thing that, that's, that's a question for me in, in Europe is how are people that professionally bring these cases, how are they going to make money, right? Because if they even get compensation of their costs, that's fine. But now you've recouped your costs, but you still haven't made money. And we don't really have a mechanism and the directive doesn't ask for it, I think, to say, can they add some money on top? Can they get some extra money from having brought this case? And this is something that I think is both not very common in Europe yet, and the directive doesn't change it. So I'd be interested to hear what others think about how would you make a business model out of this? Because I think that will drive the question where people will litigate. Yeah, Jeroen, maybe some views here from the German perspective. I completely agree with you. And I think considerations will be for the associations who can bring these mass claims. First, how consumer-friendly is a jurisdiction. How likely is it that you will get uh, an interesting award for the consumers you represent? That's the first thing. The second consideration may be procedurally how effective is a jurisdiction? Does it take eight years in first instance or eight months? Huge difference, especially if you want to have a return on investment. Uh, 
And the third probably is how friendly is it in terms of remuneration or recuperation of attorney costs and fees? Because, of course, you can only as a funder, for example, you'll get your return out of what the award to the consumer is. But of course, it's a nice add-on if you get also reimbursed for your investment in the lawyers. And a German particularity is that in the mass claim uh, statute that we have, the declaratory model action, the fees for the plaintiff's lawyers are capped at 8,000 euros. And that is extremely little money for a proceeding. For example, the class action that we've talked about during the webinar that was re related to diesel, the class action has taken more than a year before it settled and the settlement negotiations almost took three months of very intensive negotiations. I think even hotel and travel costs exceeded 8,000 euro for the plaintiff lawyer. So from, from that perspective, Germany would be a terrible jurisdiction for a plaintiff. I agree with you, Patrick. I think that uh, remuneration of the, of the plaintiff representative is going to be uh, an important feature. I think that access to evidence is also going to be a driver for for choice and the different regimes of disclosure. I think that disclosure is pretty patchy across Europe. It may change and there may be a, a more consistent approach across different jurisdictions in order to be probably more attractive to a forthcoming consumer action and, and, and mass claims. But if the situation does not change as it stands, I think that disclosure is going to be a very important element. A jurisdiction where disclosure is available to a certain scale, uh, to a certain extent, uh, associated to the ability to shift the cost of disclosure to the other party could be, a, I would say, a, a very important uh, and positive feature for the relevant regime to be adopted by a number of associations, I think. That's a very good idea, yes, that, that you look at the disclosure regime. What you can also look at is the substantive law and how it deals with the distribution of the burden of pleading and proving certain facts. As an example, in Germany, it is almost impossible to get access to documents not in your possession. Consumer associations have tried that in the past, but it's virtually impossible. However, our substantive law and the way the courts approach uh, the burden of proof are very much in favor of claimants. So you just need boilerplate allegations and then it shifts to the defendant uh, so that you have to very, very, in very much detail uh, lay out why you believe that the boilerplate allegation is incorrect. And so that actually leads you or forces you to produce a lot of factual evidence although there is no formal document production. So that I think that is a trend that you also have to observe very clearly because the, the, the mere absence of procedural disclosure mechanisms does not mean that you will not have to uh, present evidence in court, that you will not have to present in other courts, for example. But I think that if you have a statutory framework for a collective redress mechanism, I think this will support forum shopping. Because, for example, in Germany, you have this new uh, statutory framework for collective redress. In Austria, we do not have this framework, but we have this assignment model. 
And so consumers have to wait very long until the court really deals with the case on the merits. So, for example, also the, the mass claims are pending now two, over two years and they didn't uh, deal with the case on the merits and they didn't reach a settlement now. So in Germany, you, uh, the, the consumers reached a settlement within a year in Austria, they are waiting for the court to begin the proceeding on the merits. So I think if you have a statutory framework for collective redress, that, that will support uh, the jurisdiction choice for consumer associations. Yeah. It is also the case uh, in Belgium that the choices made by the legislator are certain limits to class action in Belgium. And so I see that for the time being, there are not so much class action in Belgium because of the choice on the different elements open in the EU directive. So again, I see also from the Belgian perspective a possibility of forum shopping to avoid coming into Belgium because it is too complicated today to success in a class action, if I may say like this. So you all uh, speak about the question of the business behind the class action. From that perspective, the EU directive do you think that they will have, it will have an impact on third-party funding? We may also influence the development of class action in the future. Sabine, what do you think about that? Yes, I think um, that the EU directive will have an impact and that the European appetite for litigation funding will grow because litigation funding is key for consumer associations to enable the consumer associations to, to file uh, mass claims or other collective actions. And so I think this appetite uh, for litigation funding will grow and the EU directive opens now the whole European market for them and will also create new business opportunities, for example, also for generic low-value claims in this regard. Uh, so I think the appetite will grow, yes. Thank you all for very, this very interesting discussion about your experience. And I, I think that we can conclude by the fact that we, we expect more consumer claim in the future, but at least not US-style class action uh, in Europe in the short term. So, and also an, a key element that I, I, I have uh, based on all this discussion is that coordination of your defense is extremely important. And on the top of that, coordination with a global law firm is also extremely important. So thank you for listening to this podcast. And of course, if you have any further question after having listened to this podcast, do not hesitate to send an email to all the participants and we will be happy to reply to your question. Thank you again for your attention.